Um, we are delighted to have uh, our colleague Marvin Constam here today from Tufts, Pax et Lux, Peace and Light, right? From <laughs> Tufts. So. <laughs> and uh, he has a special relationship with Jeff Coven, who will introduce him. Uh, Jeff is a professor of medicine and our section chief in cardiovascular medicine. And Jeff is going to tell us about Marvin, who has no conflicts of interest related to this talk. So Jeff, come tell us about it. Thanks, and good morning, everyone. Uh, as Rich said, I do have a special relationship uh, with Marvin. In addition to him being my clinical mentor, he actually hired me for my first job. So that was in 1999. So Marv uh, is a full professor of medicine, cardiology, and radiology at Tufts Medical Center, and he heads the cardiovascular center at Tufts. Marv actually was trained uh, initially at Columbia School of Medicine and then became a um, radiology resident at the Mass General Hospital. He then went on to internal medicine and cardiology uh, thereafter in Boston and came to what was then the New England Medical Center in 1981. He quickly rose in the ranks of leadership, becoming the head of uh, nuclear cardiology as a radiologist and cardiologist, and then became the head of the cath lab, head of the heart failure and transplant program, which you know now uh, is the largest in the Boston area, and then became chief of cardiology in 1997. He took over for Deep Salem at that time. Uh, Marv was the chief of cardiology when I joined the staff in 1999. And then in 2008, Marv took a little hiatus uh, and went to the NHLBI, where he serves as, as the senior executive overseeing extramural research in cardiovascular disease at the NIH. He came back to Tufts Medical Center one year later to start the Cardiovascular Center, and that was a new concept in cardiology about 10 years ago, where groups of cardiologists, vascular surgeons, and cardiac surgeons would come together to take care of the patients and to work together in unity, and hence our program here is somewhat modeled after uh, a program like uh, Marv started at Tufts. Marv's research and clinical um, experience is primarily in heart failure. Uh, he's been one of the leaders in, uh, thought leaders in uh, heart, heart disease and heart failure, has written most of the guidelines and textbooks and articles that we refer to every day. We just had a case conference about uh, advanced therapies in heart failure, and again, Marv has been leading the way for the country for this. Marv's uh, one of the former presidents of the Heart Failure Society of America in the early 2000s. He's, he has served on the cardiovascular and renal advisory panel for the FDA and has worked with CMS extensively uh, on heart failure pathways. Um, he's involved with the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and it's really my pleasure and honor to introduce you, Marv, to our grand rounds. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I, I was going to ask Jeff how long his intro was going to be so that I could take out a few slides. So, but I really appreciate it, and it's just a delight to be here. Um, I've been I've been to this institution a number of times, uh, including giving medical grand, uh, cardiology grand rounds. Uh, I don't know, ten years ago. Uh, but um, I obviously have a lot of friends here. Some of my medical school classmates are still here and reintroduced themselves to me, and. Uh, uh, Mark and Shelley and Jeff and Emily uh, treated uh, my wife and I very delightfully. Uh, we were out till about three in the morning <laughs> last night, so you know if I'm a little woozy, you know it's their it's their fault. Um, so uh, you know I picked a very uh, a very circumscribed minor you know, topic to talk about, the future of cardiovascular care. Um, so, so what could I cover in an hour? Uh, certainly not the whole story, but um, I call it, well, let's say from affordable care to the academic medical center, you know, I want to look at, you know, so what are the trajectories of cardiovascular disease today? What, what you know, where are we in terms of technology and drug development? But then, you know, what about cost and where are we heading, you know, in terms of, um, what drives us uh, in, in terms of reimbursement in this field and how, how healthcare is going. And at the end, uh, focus on the academic medical center and the risk that we're under at academic medical centers uh, and, uh, uh, and what we might be able to do about it. So um, we have a terrific relationship here. Uh, Alan Kono, I think he always sits in the back row, but uh, he's a dear friend and uh, 
his daughter works with us and a uh, terrific cardiologist we've been working with for a long time. And we've built a, a really wonderful uh, collaborative relationship. Uh, and uh, this is, this, well, what is this? This is the product, of, one of the products of our relationship. So this is a patient uh, from, from up here that wasn't doing well and getting worse and worse heart failure, and he was still jumping out of planes, and Alan had to stop him and say, you're going down to, to Boston. And uh, he, he wound up getting a heart transplant. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think this was uh, within a few months of his heart transplant. Um, and uh, he, I asked him whether he got permission from Dr. Genofrio to do this, and he goes, no. And I, he said, that's, that, you're, you're smart. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. That, that's what I always felt growing up as a teenager. But um, uh, this guy, uh, so he, he actually presented himself to our Tufts Medical Center Board of Trustees yesterday and, and told his story. And, um, you know, uh, I asked him, uh, to highlight, uh, you know, I, I asked a loaded question. I said, you know, can you speak a little bit to what the relationship between Dartmouth and us has meant to your care? How, 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 how have you experienced that? And he just couldn't, couldn't rave about it enough. And uh, so I'm glad we delivered that message to the uh, Board of Trustees. So um, very, very thrilled to be part of, a, of that relationship. Okay. Oh, and by the way, I think... Uh, I think David wanted him to wait at least a year before he started jumping out of planes to make sure when your survival wasn't implemented, effective. <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, so so what's happening in cardiovascular disease? Some really good news. Uh, we've seen a we've seen a um, this isn't working. So maybe okay. Um, maybe this will work. Okay. We've seen a, a, a steady decline in cardiovascular mortality uh, over the past uh, decade, decade and a half, and, and longer. And the uh, only problem is there's some disparity in different racial and eth ethnic groups. Notice that it's uh, still the highest among blacks uh, than in other groups. Um, if you wanted a pointer. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I'm good with this, too. Thanks so much. Uh, and... Um, so, uh, so this is really great. So, what's what's driven this? Uh, and I think a bunch of a bunch of stuff: uh, prevention, diagnostics, pharmacology, technology, all have contributed uh, to this. Prevention being being obviously um, a big one. And um, so, then let's turn now to okay, what what are the things? So, if we're going to prevent it, you know, what are the things that uh, are driving cardiovascular disease? And this is a series of epidemiologic studies that looked at, uh, in a multivariate way, what are the risk factors for developing heart failure. And it's really a very monotonous finding from study to study. You know, it's the things that I've got circled that are common to every analysis. Hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. Hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. It shows up again and again. Uh, it's not restricted to HEFPEF or HEFREF. It crosses that, uh, that, that uh, uh, boundary. Uh, it, uh, you know, and it, the, these things may be related to coronary disease, but they also clearly have a direct effect on myocardial uh, pathology. So here they are, hypertension, diabetes, and obesity, major risk factors, and that's part of why, uh, uh, along with the aging of our population, heart failure is a growth industry and will continue to rise in, in prevalence. Um, and so this is estimates from the advisory board. There's similar data from the American Heart Association uh, that uh, between um, 2010 and 2030, by, that, by, the end, by 2030, we're expecting uh, a, a prevalence in the adult population of 9.3% with coronary disease and 3.5% uh, up from 2.8% currently uh, in heart failure. So that's the trajectory of these diseases, and these are costly diseases. Um, so before we get to that, let's just uh, pay, pay respects to all of the amazing technologic advances that we're seeing in the field of, of cardiovascular care. And they come, you know, all over the map, from devices like uh, transvascular uh, aortic valve replacement, uh, drugs uh, like, in this case, uh, the combination of Secubitril and Valsartan, resulting in an 80% further reduction in mortality compared to an Alipril, a drug that we know works. 
So this is this is um, you know really quite quite a finding. Uh, biologics. So here's a. Uh, inhibitory RNA against PCSK9. This is a single injection uh, done at this time, and this is what happens to LDL cholesterol. And all the outcomes, of course, we don't have outcomes on, from this intervention alone, but it's pretty safe to guess that this is, you know, and, and look at where the LDL, well, this is just percent change, but dramatic falls in LDL cholesterol that are sustained for some time after a single injection. So this is pretty remarkable, and we may be seeing it at some point in time in clinical use. Um, and this is interesting on the diagnostic side. This is from Sanjeev Shah, and it represents a phenomap for heart failure. So this is not molecular biology, so clinicians don't, don't fall asleep. So this is uh, in patients with heart failure and preserved EF and saying, you know, this is not really a homogeneous population. We really have to figure out, you know, subsets of this disease. And he's really going to town with this, with a computerized phenomap uh, to try to understand uh, what this is. So a lot of advances that are, may have major impact on the way we practice medicine and presumably on the outcomes for our patients. This is the flip side. The flip side is increasing cost. Uh, and uh, so these are projections from the American Heart Association for all cardiovascular disease uh, and the various types of cardiovascular disease. But if you just look up here, uh, it's expected uh, that by 2030, uh, there would be uh, the, the overall direct cost for managing cardiovascular disease is expected to hit $1.2 trillion. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's a lot of money. And uh, it, it clearly would outpace the growth of our gross domestic product. Uh, and uh, so the, the issue is, this is what's projected. Now, it's projected on the basis, you know, of the aging of our population and, you know, technology advancement. And, uh, but, and it, but it assumes that we basically continue to practice medicine the way we are. That's, that's, the, oh, that's the basic assumption behind this. They don't say that, but that's, they just take, okay, what's happening to the population, and if we're doing what we're doing now, what will happen, and this is what will happen, what supposedly will happen. Uh, I'm pretty sure this isn't going to happen, because it's, it's really, we, we'd be in a desperate situation uh, nationwide if this really happened <clears throat> in terms of we, we're already spending such a such a large a large part of our GDP on healthcare so things are got now so I should have given you know I said my my disclosures are I don't have any any relevant disclosures but um, but I should have given a disclaimer which is that anything I say might not be true today or as compared to yesterday or compared to tomorrow. So what is going to happen in healthcare? Anybody know? Raise your hand. Uh, I have no idea, and things are changing day by day. So, but this slide, I, but my comment still holds on this. I think somehow or other, we are going to find a way to reduce costs, and it's already happening. Not happening fast enough, but it's happening. So how is that happening? Well, this is one example of what is happening. Uh, and it's happening in cardiovascular care, and it's happening in many other uh, areas, which is a shift uh, in care from the inpatient to the outpatient setting. So here are uh, a lot of procedures that are, uh, that are uh, fondly looked upon uh, by, I'm sure, your heart and vascular center as, our, as our, is ours, uh, that, that, you know, um, inpatient vascular, EP, medical cardiology, cardiac cath, all expected to decline. And, and we know from, actually, this is projections, but we know from data in eastern Massachusetts and some data that was developed in, in Illinois that this is already happening. It's actually been happening, you know, for six or seven years. Uh, and it, and it, but, but it was pro is projected to accelerate. Um, while uh, outpatient procedures will rise, I think overall utilization rates are going to fall some. Uh, but... Uh, but th this is uh, outpatient EP, outpatient vascular lab, et cetera. So a lot of these procedures are going to shift to the outpatient uh, setting. What's, what's driving these things right now? Uh, you know, things like readmission penalties uh, and specific incentives that are uh, given to primary care doctors uh, from in, in their risk contracts uh, and by CMS to, uh, to reduce the rate of 
what are thought to be uh, avoidable hospitalizations, and they are being specifically and inc incrementally financially rewarded or penalized based on their patients being admitted to the hospitals, you know, with, with certain diagnoses. So those are some of the things. And then as we, as we take more risk, as we have bundled payments and, 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 and ACOs, you know, those are going to um, impact on, on all of us in terms of driving inpatient care down. So uh, the hospital might not be the center of healthcare anymore in a few years. You know, we have to really rethink. I'll, I'll, at the end, I'm going to talk about rethinking the academic medical center. But one of the things we have to do is say, you know, uh, inpatient care is not going to be as great. Now, look at there's a projection here from the advisory board that cardiac surgery inpatient, of course, cardiac surgery will increase by about 5%. So what's going on there? And what's going on there is it's very circumscribed conditions and indications, VADs and valves. VADs and valves are what are projected to drive cardiac surgery inpatient uh, activity up slightly. These are expected to grow, go up dramatically. Here, this is a, a transcatheter aortic valve replacement that is becoming in wide, widespread use now. Um, and, and things, uh, so, so interventions, and particu particularly percutaneous interventions, <coughs> transvascular interventions for structural heart disease uh, is expected to grow as technology uh, improves in this area. Uh, and the other thing that's a growth industry at this point uh, is advanced therapies for advanced heart failure, including the use of ventricular assist devices, uh, like, like these, these two small devices. And these are, these are not even the latest generation devices. Uh, these, these are coming, we're just coming out with the, the HeartMate 3. Uh, this is the hardware device, and they're coming out with a new device shortly. So uh, the, the uh, and, and if we ever get rid of, by the way, if we ever get rid of this thing, the transcutaneous drive line, uh, that might really drive these these uh, devices into less sick populations. Um, now, um, so here's what's been happening. Um, I don't know what exactly happened in 2014, but it's continued to rise. And so this is the use of left ventricular assist devices. These are permanent left ventricular assist devices from 2006 to 2014, and it's been up, 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 and it certainly has been true in our institution uh, as well. Um, so, you know, it brings us to, I want to just say, well, okay, you know, so we're talking about cost, and, uh, you, know, we, you know, I think we're, we're kind of unethical if we talk about cost in the absence of effectiveness or efficacy. Um, and people get mixed up between two things. There, there's cost reduction, there's cost reduction, and then there's improved cost effectiveness. You know, in cost, improved cost effectiveness, you're not necessarily reducing cost. You're just getting a, a, better, a better balance between the cost and the benefit. If you, but, but even there, you might be increasing cost. So then, but now we're saying we got to do beyond that, we actually have to reduce costs or reduce the growth of costs. So um, at the very least, we ought to be thinking about doing it in a cost-effective way. So this is a, you know, cost-effective ratio uh, chart, and this is uh, what was analyzed uh, as uh, the, the, the curve with heart failure. So uh, th this uh, curve, you can see as you increase uh, dollars spent, you're increasing uh, the reduction, the, the improvement in quality-adjusted life years. And this curve sits around uh, $97,000 per quality-adjusted life years. So this kind of fits into what we think is cost-effective. The problem is when we start using LVADs on top of that, uh, and this is just LVADs as destination therapy, and this is LVADs as bridge to transplant, these curves uh, change, and you start to get fairly high numbers at dollars, quality-adjusted life years per, per dollars. And these are not particularly in the cost-effective range. And, you know, I, I think we're going to have to watch this because these are really life-saving uh, therapies that have a dramatic impact on outcome. Uh, and uh, I think one of the things that's going to have to happen is to, for the cost of these devices to go down <clears throat> and the cost of the care of the patients around use of these devices, which is enormous, to find ways for that to go down. Okay, 
So let's keep going along this trajectory and where are we heading? My, my son made this slide. I, I couldn't figure out how to do it. I said, you know, I want a balance between two canoes. He decided an elephant. This guy I don't think could fit in either of these canoes, but it's cool. So, uh, you know, where are we? Where are we, right? Are we in a FIFA service environment and are, or are we in population health? I, I, dare, I dare say um, if you ask people like Dr. Krieger, you know, who directs the Heart and Vascular Institute, um, you know, what, what, is, what is the commodity that he's looking at first and foremost in terms of the financial health uh, of his center? And I'll, I'll bet anything, the first thing he looks at is discharges. Okay, how many patients were getting through the hospital and discharging? Because that is the, is the single biggest thing that drives revenue. And if you can keep the cost of those admissions down, that's going to drive the contribution margin of the center. So we talk about population health, but we're not there yet in terms of shifting the mindset. So things are changing, and we're trying to figure out how to balance that transition, which is difficult because we don't even know now how fast that's going to come, you know, with things that are going to happen happening in Washington. So this is a projection uh, from the advisory group. Uh, advisory board, uh, and, and we don't know really, based on everything going on in Washington, whether this is going to happen this way. But this is, you know, what the trajectory that's been laid down for CMS, Centers for Medicaid and Mer Medicare and Medicaid Services, in terms of how we're being reimbursed, you know, and, and so uh, this is, uh, so cl clinical process, so fee pure fee-for-service, 70% of our payment in 2013. Um, and what this chart says, I'm not quite sure it's, it's at this point, but uh, it moves progressively so that uh, the, 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 what's believed anyway is that we're 25% rewarded by, for efficiency. Uh, outcomes of care are impacting 40% as we shift toward uh, fee-for-value instead of fee-for-performance. Patient experience and then, you know, a minor element of clinical practice um, you know, I, I don't know about your institution. We're, we're not at this, we're not as advanced as this. We were, certainly weren't in 2016, and we're not now. But regardless of the time frame, this is the trajectory that we believe we're moving on. You know, and I, I, I got to believe this is going to happen, uh, you know, no matter how the healthcare, um, healthcare field has changed. But we'll see. Um, so in 2022, 75% of inpatient cases will be funded by Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, and so uh, the powers that be in Washington have an awful lot to say about this. I'm going to come back to that uh, in, in a few minutes and ask, you know, is that really the best way? Should we leave the, the forces here in the, solely in the hands of the federal government? That, that's an interesting question. We'll, we'll come back to that. Okay, so there's a question mark as to whether that's actually going to happen. I don't know. So uh, a primer on the Affordable Care Act while it's still here. Okay, what is the Affordable Care Act and what's happening to it? You know, so just in summary, uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare, so to speak, resulted in 20 to 22 million more individuals insured across the country, affordability for low-income uh, individuals, standardized coverage, okay, you know, all coverage is not the same. It's got to meet certain basic standards. Negatives, higher taxes, uh, weighted, weighted toward uh, wealthier individuals, but market instability and higher premiums in some regions. So these are the things that have been focused on by the critics of the Affordable Care Act. Look at the mess it's creating. Now, <clears throat> Here's, here's why I disagree with them. Uh, what is the root cause of market instability and higher premiums in some areas? Well, the problem is that 20% of the population consumes 80% of health care. So if you say that everybody's got to be insured, and if you say that pre-existing pre conditions uh, aren't going to matter, and if you say that all insurance plans have to meet certain standards, um, if you don't get a large pool of healthy people in the system, uh, the, the rest of people in there are going to really be paying a lot for those, those really good insurance policies. <clears throat> and so the idea was universal coverage. It has to be there. How are we going to get universal coverage? Well, uh, you know, there's going to be a penalty for not getting insurance. We're going to give a lot of subsidies for people in lower income. We're going to get more people on Medicaid. And, and we're going to get 
try to get everybody in the system. The people who designed the Affordable Care Act knew that that wasn't going to happen instantaneously, that as they start to move into these regs, still with, with too few people insured, there is going to be market instability and there are going to be excessive premiums. So we need to have some things in place to mitigate that. And they put things in place to mitigate that. And they're called the three R's, uh, reinsurance, risk corridor, risk adjustment, without getting into inside baseball. You know, these are three methodologies that, that kind of backstop insurance companies in terms of their losses and spread the losses across insurance companies that are taking on higher risk versus those that are not. So these were the things that were going to supposed to get us through the period before we got universal coverage. The problem is they were, I wanted the word, can I use the word sucked? The, these things all sucked. They didn't work. Uh, reinsurance was transient and, and really wasn't sufficient uh, to help in a great deal in terms of federal reinsurance. So the, the, the risk corridor program was eviscerated. Uh, Eighty-seven percent of the money in that risk corridor program were removed uh, by a Republican amendment uh, to, the bu to the budget a couple of years ago. Um, uh, you may remember uh, Marco Rubio during the, the Republican debates taking credit for this. He kept saying he did something to destroy Affordable Care Act. This was the amendment that he put in which reduced the, the, the money for this program by 87%. Many lawsuits against the federal government ensued from that. And there's a thing called risk, risk adjustment. I'll just say the formulas for it really are bad in the sense that they severely uh, injure uh, 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 startups. Uh, early Recent entries into the market were very heavily hit because of the way this particular adjustment uh, was put in, was created. Okay, so that's the problem. See, so laying it out that way, I think you can see, like, you know, this is fixable. You know, we, we can put back into place effective means that will get us through, the, through this these years and really keep driving to get toward universal coverage. If we do those two things, you know, I believe that this would, will really wind up working all right. Um, so what, what uh, do the, the alternative bills that have, various bills that have passed through Congress and none of which had gotten, have gotten um, passed, uh, I think was, this is the American Health Care Act, uh, and, and, and here are the things that they did in aggregate. End Medicare, ex Medicaid expansion, just stop it. Uh, eliminates the personal mandate so it doesn't drive people into, into the market. Restructures subsidies. So there are fewer subsidies for, um, for people who can't afford it. And states would be allowed to opt out of standards so that given, in a given state, they might, might be allowed to sell insurance companies, insurance policies that aren't really worth anything. So this didn't pass. Okay, but, uh, and the, the prediction was that this would result in a, a large number of fewer insured by 2026, but it was going to reduce taxes by $1.2 trillion. This would have helped them, you know, in the current uh, tax thing because it would have balanced, uh, uh, well, no, this would have contributed to the tax. I don't know how this would have worked. Okay, sorry about that. Um, but there's another element, and that's our president, and he's doing everything he can from his vantage point to bring down this, this our health care uh, plan. Uh, he's hampered exchange enrollment, so the Obamacare did a lot to try to, you know, advertise and have facilitators out in the market. They've cut way back or eliminated all of that. So they're doing nothing to facilitate people and encourage them to enter the market. Eliminate subsidies. Uh, they're eliminating subsidies and copays and, uh, and deductibles for copays and deductibles, allowing insurance products that don't meet the Affordable Care Act standards. And, and to throw in there, the, the, I think the Senate version of the tax bill uh, that was just passed, passed the Senate uh, would, would also eliminate the personal mandate, you know, as another blow. So these are like a thousand razor cuts that really will decimate the Affordable Care Act. It just won't, will make it not work and, and seriously worsen the situation. So let's just look at one thing here, Medicaid expansion. So what was the effect of Medicaid expansion? Medicaid expansion said we're going to exp extend Medicaid to everyone who has about a one, uh, who has uh, an income, family income, uh, up to about 1.4 times the poverty level. And anybody in that range is going to be able to get on Medicaid. It was a nationwide plan. The Supreme Court ruled that you can't, you can't not allow uh, states to opt out. So states opted in or out. Um, and so this nice analysis uh, done by uh, Larry Allen and, and one of his trainees 
uh, looked at the effect of, and there, there are a lot of studies like this that show the, the, that, that show the, the benefit uh, accrued from me the Medicaid expansion plan, and this is one that s catches my eye more than others. So uh, this line represents the time uh, of, of, medic of the initial Medicaid expansion, and what they did is they compared what happened in states that adopted early Medicaid expansion compared to those who did not adopt it at all. There were some mid-range folks who came in late, and they're, they're eliminated from this analysis. But anyway, so these are, these are different uh, racial ethnic groups. African Americans are up here. And, and the findings that they had really related to the effect on African Americans. And what this, what this is measuring uh, is uh, the, the, the rate at which African Americans were listed for heart transplant. So African Americans get a lot more heart failure than other ethnic groups. But, the, but they proportionately, historically, have a much lower rate of, of, uh, uh, of availability of advanced therapies. So, so look at what happened to the listings of African Americans during this time period. Did not happen in those states that did not adopt Medicaid expansion. <clears throat> and the other, the other ethnic groups really didn't, didn't see much of this phenomenon. So, so this has improved, you know what, if you, if you believe it, this has improved access to care for a very high-end uh, therapy you know, and, and, and working toward uh, diminishing a disparity in our health care. So this is, this is what would go away do, do, in part uh, with removal of the Medicaid expansion. The Affordable Care Act is much or mostly about the underserved and vulnerable. You know, it's not really about the people in this room. It's about people who, uh, you know, really uh, are not getting insured and they're showing up at our emergency departments and uh, places like Dartmouth-Hitchcock wind up, you know, paying for them by moving costs from one payer to another payer or to, to no payer. And that's not going to be sustainable, you know, as, as uh, reimbursements continue to decline. So this is a real problem for, for folks like us. Um, so I, I touched on this, and let's dive into this a little further. So um, universal health care, right, uh, shifting of risk to the provider and sort of collaborating in that financial risk between payer and provider. Those, I believe, are really good things. Uh, but then people get, then say, well, well, that has to be the federal government. So it doesn't, of course. You know, you can do those things without the total involvement of the federal government. And there's a big debate about whether we should just move to a single payer plan. I'll show you, but, but I'm not a big fan of the way gov the government, government actually does things. And I'll, I'll show you why. Well, I'll just show this study quickly. Uh, this is by uh, this guy, Kapoor. And, uh, you know, so they found, they looked, at, uh, they looked at outcomes and process based on what insurance people had, and they found decreased quality of care and outcomes among folks who either had no insurance, Medicaid, or Medicare. And they tried correcting this for soci socioeconomic differences, and still after those corrections, this still hold. I don't believe those corrections were perfect. I think socioeconomic factors are probably entering in here as well. But this is room for pause that, you know, at least those people on Medicare, Medicaid, you know, are not winding up with as good quality of care as people uh, on commercial insurance. Uh, so uh, I wrote an editorial to accompany this, and what I said is, Kapoor et al. have provided a window on the potential for our evolving health system to either exacerbate or mitigate disparities. Patients and providers will be better off if the system allows them to share in the rewards of quality health care rather than incentivizing the arbitrary withholding of proven <coughs> management strategies. So what am I talking about? It, this is the kind of thing that the federal government likes to do. They like using penalties, and they like, and I'll, and I'll show you how, I'll show you an example of a penalty that has uh, gone awry with unintended consequences. And here it is. So this is the, uh, the beloved 30-day readmission metric. Uh, and based on your performance, you're at risk for up to 3% of your overall uh, Medi Medicare revenues for your entire system based on your performance on a number of diagnoses. So I hate it. I think it's horrible. I think it's not a quality metric. It's a utilization metric. I'll explain why in a second. Uh, and I wrote this article, which is called, I, I spent half the time figuring out the title, uh, Heart Failure in the Lifetime of Musca Domestica. Musca Domestica, as all of you know, is the common housefly. Uh, and I discovered, because I, I read 
uh, kidsworld.com religiously. And in this issue that I was reading, I discovered that the housefly uh, has about a 30-day lifespan. I said, you know what? The 30-day readmission metric would be perfect for the housefly <laughs> because that's such an important part of his lifespan, right? It's all of it. So if we can keep him out of the hospital for 30 days, wow, what a life he has. Uh, humans, not so much, right? Uh, but what are the real problems with it? Uh, short-term, short-term perverse incentives. So if you really focus on 30 days, and then that's, that's the whole holy grail, what you wind up avoiding treatments, clinicians will wind up avoiding treatments with major short, minor short-term risk and major long-term benefit. So some of the drugs we use in heart failure, you know, if, if patients stable two, outs, two weeks out from a heart failure hospitalization and they're doing all right, but their heart rate is like 90, you know, and uh, we're, we're 14 days out, do I really want to start a beta blocker now? Let's hold off until you know, 30 days, and maybe the patient actually won't get on it for, for six months. Same with spironolactone. People wind up getting in the hospital for hyperkalemia. So I hate to do that and wind up the patient getting Let's not do that right away. Even though these are, these are major, uh, major benefits have been d- described with these therapies. So I have no doubt that those, those kind of calculus uh, arise. Um, and the major part of that, and, and the worst part about this, is it does not account for the competing risk of death. You may not realize this. But the 30-day readmission metric, you do fine if the patient dies. In fact, that's the best way to keep the patient out of the hospital. Okay, am I being too cynical? No, it is. I mean, the patient will not be hospitalized if they're dead. Now, if they were creating a quality metric, they would have incorporated uh, death. They would have said death or hospitalization. They didn't. So this is a pure cost, cost-related utilization metric. It is not a quality metric. Um, and by the way... The risk adjustment sucks. Oh, I said it again. The risk adjustment for this doesn't work. Um, and th- there was a paper to that effect uh, by Harlan Krumholz. And Jenica Upshaw and I wrote the editorial around it. We called it Sisyphus in the 30-day heart failure. Uh, I, I work on the titles a lot. Sisyphus in 30-day heart failure readmission, futility in predicting a flawed outcome metric. And we argue that if a metric is flawed, and I go into it in detail in the paper, you know, then, then it's actually very hard to predict it if it's a flawed metric. And if you read the article, maybe there's the rationale for why that is. So the, so the, so the predictive methodology is bad. That is the adjustment methodology, what you should be gauged on in your hospital versus other hospitals. So this is a paper that I was part of. This was really an analysis that Greg Fonero uh, did, um, and uh, Clyde Yancey and I were co-authors that came out this year. And what this looks at um, is population trends uh, across uh, the, the Medicare population. Uh, no, actually, it's, it's, I think it's an all-payer population. Uh, and uh, it looks at um, the timing of implementation of the 30-day readmission uh, metrics. And what the government likes to look at, to point to, is this decline in the, popul- in the rate of readmissions across the population. What, what uh, Greg really highlighted here for the first time is, okay, this is the trajectory for deaths following heart failure hospitalization. This was the trajectory in green before implementation. And so with implementation, there's been a shift. And this is a major increase in mortality relative to what was projected, con- con- concordant with the implementation of the metric. Now, people say, well, you know, this could be other things going on at the same time. Okay, well, this could be due to other things, too. You can't have it both ways. So is this truly causal? I don't know, but it's pretty scary. Uh, Okay, so, um, you know, that metric is really bad. But I think it's an example of, and here's, I like writing, writing editorials, whose metric is it anyway, right? We are heading in the wrong direction of allowing government policymakers, rather than the patients, to drive the design of clinical care metrics. Where's the patient in this? If the patient understood the 30-day readmission metric and knew that there was sort of an incentive for him to be allowed to die, what, do you, how many people would like say, yeah, that's a good metric? So it wouldn't happen, right? So we have to design systems in which the patients have a say in this, and we really look at metrics that, that uh, uh, um, are beneficial in that way. And uh, the government has not been good at this. So 
I'm not a big fan of government. Maybe you're hearing that. And so what I'm, what I'm giving, you know, but I think there are things it has to do, uh, as the Affordable Care Act does. Uh, but here, the goals are universal coverage. Uh, you know, I don't know if everybody agrees with me, but we got to do this, right? I mean, this is a societal requirement in my mind. You know, I don't, I don't know how you argue against this, really. Uh, at the same time, the conundrum is you have to reduce health care costs or at least reduce the trajectory. So the observation is the federal government does not have all the answers. So, you know, a pathway forward is, is integrated delivery systems. So if you integrate the payer and the provider... Uh, like a Kaiser Permanente plan, or like it seems to be happening in the Pittsburgh marketplace, where where there's 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 uh, merger between major payers and major institutions, uh, and you wind up with integrated systems, perhaps you know two or three in a marketplace competing with each other on the basis of quality and cost, and and so they're competing on the basis of the cost of their premiums, uh, and they're competing on. On quality, at that point, the consumer probably would say, I, I want to understand these metrics. It's got to be something that's meaningful to me because that's what, where I'm going to choose, where I'm going to pay my premium. The other thing that has to go along with this, unfortunately, is limited networks. So I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that as much as we love being able to go to any provider, I think that's a problem in actually getting the cost. Under. I think we, we need to put our population into systems of care that work within a system and drive together to cut the cost down or at, or at, and are at risk together. So that's another thing we could discuss. Um, so that's what I think is probably the best approach, and I'd love to see the government do something to drive us in that direction. I'm a dreamer. So anyway, the last segment now is to go into academics and what we're facing. And when I talk about academics, I don't have to convince this audience about its importance. But, you know, we have to convince our colleagues in private practice and to say that it's that academics is not about the ivory tower and people you know uh, getting published and getting promoted and that sort of thing it's about patient care right it's about training the people who are going to go out and care for patients it's about developing new therapies that hopefully are cost effective that will improve improve uh, the life and, and experience of our patients that's from academics right it's, it's academicians that are driving those two things. So let's look at uh, the, the, the need for physicians. This is an analysis from the Association of Academic Medical Centers uh, that projects by 2025 there will be a shortage. Now, there's a big range here, but this was kind of the median projection. It was about 130,000 physician shortage by 2025. And another interesting part of this, which surprised a lot of people, is they analyzed that that, that number is probably split pretty evenly between PCPs and specialists. Interestingly, you could argue about how that, what assumptions went into that, but at least th this is what, what came out. So we're going to have a shortage of docs. That's what we're, we're hearing. Now, what are we doing about that? Well, uh, medical schools have been doing something. They've been increasing their classes. New medical schools have cropped up. So this is the trajectory of medical students in DO programs and MD programs from 2002 to 2016. Uh, they've, we've seen a big increase in white here, you know, uh, for, from, from there to there in the number of people coming out of medical school. And look what they're hitting. They're hitting a glass ceiling of graduate medical education, funded graduate medical education slots. And I, I'm going to be careful here because I say anything wrong, uh, Jeff will correct me. But, uh, but this, this number has been uh, pretty constant. And so now we do not have enough graduate medical education slots for all the people coming out of American uh, medical schools. Um, and so something, so we need, so where does all the, the funding for graduate medical education, the vast majority of it comes from the federal government, uh, mostly, mostly through, through Medicare, uh, uh, direct, directed by Medicare. Um, so, um, you know, last year I, I, I had the opportunity to chair uh, the Academic Cardiology Council for the American College of Cardiology, and we did a lot of stuff. One of the things we did is we actually... Uh, awakened the American College of Cardiology to the importance of academic medicine. And as a result of that, uh, you know, lobbying for uh, research funding and graduate medical education has risen to one of the priority advocacy points for the ACC that had never, never been before. So that's cool. So we wrote this paper as well called The Academic Medical System. Uh, reinvention to survive the revolution in healthcare. So, what's the issue? AMCs are facing enormous challenges: decline in government funding, shifting payment models, increased competition from other ex excellent 
tertiary quaternary centers that are cropping up around us that, are, that do not have the academic mission as part of their mission. <clears throat> These will drive many academic medical centers to de-emphasize or forsake their core missions. If you don't think that's true, you know, sit in on board meetings sometime and, and listen to the pressures that they're facing and how many of the people on boards really are, you know, have their hearts in academic medicine. You have to keep reminding them, well, why are you serving on that, this board? Oh, it's because you believe in the mission of academic medicine. But you have to keep reminding them of that because otherwise they're going to start saying, you know, let's, 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 let's just reduce our graduate medical education program or let's just reduce our, our uh, research portfolio. And, and I believe this is going to happen, and I think they are going to be academic medical centers that are going to close, okay, quite frankly. <coughs> um, so we propose uh, a whole set of things, uh, and, and basically they fall into three categories, internal restructuring, system-wide partnerships. So if you're in a system, start thinking about how you can work across the system. That's why it's called academic medical system, to enhance the, enhance the academic mission. And, and I think once you start thinking about it, there are lots of ways to do that. And novel approaches to support research and education, uh, establishing the academic medical system of the future. So uh, this, this sort of shows an overview of what we're talking about. Uh, and so the values... That, that the core values uh, that have to be part of a successful and, and academic med medical center that is maintaining its mission, obviously the academic mission has to be there. It has to provide clinical value, and it has to be properly organized and aligned. Um, and here are so, sort of the, all the sub-goals. Uh, be innovative, therapeutically advanced, community-focused, high-quality, patient-centered, performance-based, efficient, partnered and aligned, and I'll talk about this ne uh, next, system-oriented and entrepreneurial. Like, those are all great things. If we could, if, if, if a medical center can do all those things, they'll be in good shape, right? So what's the scorecard right now? Obviously, it varies, and, and some centers are doing this great, these th various ones of these great. Other ones have shortfalls in certain areas. I, I think, by and large, academic medical centers are more innovative uh, than, than competitors, although one could argue that. Uh, they, t they tend to be, sorry, they tend to be therapeutically advanced. Not that others are not, but they tend to be on the leading edge. They tend to have investigators that bring uh, leading edge therapies into their community. Uh, they, 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 we think they're high quality. Uh, patients have thought for a long time they're high quality. They're not quite thinking that anymore. Uh, and I think the, the data don't really support that academic medical centers across the board have been better quality than non-academic centers uh, as, it, as, as we keep evolving. So we have to really jump on top of that, and we have to be able to show that we outperform uh, others in, in, in the academic centers. You should keep utilizing the academic medical centers if for no other reason that. Uh, these, these other things are up for grabs. You know, uh, it, they're really variably, I think you could scorecard, you know, score any particular medical center. Some do better at some, some do better at others. Uh, so I'm going to focus my last points on organization and alignment. Um, and so this is uh, a um, schematic at a very high level uh, of our cardiovascular center, uh, which just celebrated its ninth, ninth birthday at Tufts Medical Center. Um, and, and really uh, uh, very similar to the Heart, Heart and Vascular Center that, that uh, Dr. Krieger leads and that this institution really has embraced. Um, and so this is the idea. You know, if a patient comes in with a heart, with heart or vascular disease, these, you know, in the traditional structure, these are all the different silos, that, uh, and I'll call them silos, that, that people, that they have to negotiate. And some of these are competing with each other for professional revenues. And some of these, like, have a lot of things on their mind, you know, other, other than how to deliver patient care. So it's very simple. Just put them all together, you know. So bring all, all the elements needed to deliver cardiovascular care under a single organizational, operational, 
financial uh, umbrella, align the incentives across everybody participating in that care, and magical things will, under, under excellent leadership, and magical things will, will start to happen. So, you know, what, what, actually, I remember Jeff loved this slide. He, he copied it numerous times in other slides that he made, although he made it, he made it better. But, um, but anyway, this was, we made this like nine years ago, and it said that uh, we can do a better job at building uh, disease-oriented, patient-oriented centers by crossing the various divisions across different departments of those folks delivering cardiovascular care. And then we can have a heart failure and cardiac transplant center of, of surgeons and cardiologists that are all pulling in the same direction. A vascular medical center, fine. You know, vascular surgeons, cardiologists want to be in the act. Interventional radiology, one BBAC. Okay, well, you're now under one umbrella. So we can, well, it makes it easier to figure it out together, how you're going to run that. And, and across the board, you know, we really need these, these programs that be aligning people across these different uh, di uh, disciplines and divisions. So, so in terms of advancing clinical care in the academic medical center, integrate and align across academic departments between the hospital and physicians, measure and incentivize uh, enterprise-wide, and program-specific, uh, focus on uh, and, and measure and incentivize financial performance, quality, and patient satisfaction, uh, prepare for population management, which requires system integration and alignment on a broader scale, and cost-effective care. Those are the things you got to do, you know, if you're going to be successful in population management. And finally, innovate to preserve the academic mission. So uh, the, the federal government has not been trustworthy in terms of supplying. There are some bills around for increasing graduate medical education funding. As far as I know, they haven't gone anywhere. The, the federal government has been pretty good to the NIH the last couple of years. We don't know if that's going to be sustained. So we have to find other ways of, of funding the academic mission. Partnerships uh, with industry, uh, taking your, uh, your faculties, uh, you know, inventions, innovations, new ideas, new molecules, uh, and driving them to, you know, uh, in an entrepreneurial way uh, to support your institution and, and, uh, um, and uh, the academic mission. So those are a couple of things, and, and there are many others. Uh, use your network. Figure out how you can actually capitalize on the network you have uh, to implement the, the academic mission. Think about how, how that might be done. So, and this is what happens if you don't. It's where, this is what happened to the dinosaurs. I mean, there'd be a lot of arguments, but I know on authority that what they said is, I hear they're going, they're going to use some of our fare to pay for research and graduate medical education. Forget it. I'm not getting on. So that's what happened to the dinosaurs, and that's what will happen to academic medical centers uh, if that's not taken care of. So in summary, uh, overall summary, increased prevalence of cardiovascular disease, uh, advances in drugs and technology, rising costs, perhaps will be mitigated by risk sharing and value focus, uh, improved outcomes, but persistent or worsening disparities, an avalanche of metrics, but we have to refocus on the patient when we're doing that, drive to universal coverage, but consider competitive integrated delivery systems as, alter as an alternative to a single payer plan, challenges to the academic medical center, uh, but, they but they will reinvent, restructure, and thrive uh, as academic medical systems. You know, so my prediction is uh, we'll figure it out. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. This guy, right, I mean, if he can be jumping out of airplanes five months after his heart transplant, you know, we can save the academic mission and also advanced health care and have, have universal health care. All we have to do is all get together, sing Kumbaya, and, and, and do the right thing. doesn't tend to happen in, in Washington, but maybe things will change. Um, and I really appreciate coming, so thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. That was really, really fantastic. A couple minutes for questions. Rich? That was really interesting review. I'm just curious if you compared the future of cardiovascular medicine here in the U.S. with a European country or a country with a national health system. Is it, is it a different picture? Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I haven't studied it myself, so I, you know, I hesitate. Um, you, you, well, I'm not sure what you're asking exactly. So, I mean, obviously they have very different health systems with, with good and bad. You know, the, the, the metric, you know, is, you know, uh, cost relative to life expectancy and stuff. 
Um, and, and as you know, for developed countries, we do poorly on that scale compared to Western Europe and other places. So there's that. Um, you know, I think if you talk to people, I think there's a mixed bag in terms of that. But I think there's more uniform delivery of health care, of course, in those, in those countries. They, I don't think they have as much disparity, nearly as much disparity as we have, which is, which is the big deal. Uh, and in terms of the way their medical centers are structured, I, I can't speak to it except to say that they, they tend to be traditionalists. And I think in terms of truly restructuring at that level, um, I think they have a harder time doing it than we could have if we really put our minds to it. Depending on the country, though, they have uniformity of basic care. Right. And they see, Mark, lots of high-tech things, but you have to have private insurance in order to be accessing or, or self-pay in order to have access to those technologies. It really depends on the country. Yeah. No, great, great point. So uh, their regulatory pathway for, for devices is very different than ours. Uh, and to get a device uh, on the market over there, you need a CE mark. That basically means that the device does not, electro does not electrocute you. If you prove it doesn't electro electrocute the patient, it'll get a CE mark. And then it's country by country deciding whether the National Health Service will pay for it. And if they don't, you're, you're absolutely right. So, you know, they are... I don't know whether the decision-making is rational or not. I don't know whether they really look at cost-effectiveness. They certainly are looking at total cost. Um, and uh, you hope they're doing the right thing. You hope that they're making those decisions on, on a rational basis. Yes? You know, can you uh, see any ability to control costs by integrating cardiovascular services within a given medical center or academic institution, um, it seems to me that these are almost contradictory. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, absolutely. Well, okay, first off, uh, we, you know, you and we are very interested in cost, okay? But the cost we're interested is in case cost. Okay, Co unit costs. So how much does it cost us to deliver a certain hospitalization? We are not that interested in population costs, okay, because we're not incentivized that way. You know, we're not really bearing the risk of the overall medical dollar. So the only thing that's really going to shift our focus, you know, from the small cost to the big cost is really changing the whole way we make money. And, uh, you know, and in, the, in, a, in an integrated delivery system, you will be doing that because there, you know, I'm going to buy my insurance directly from that integrated delivery system. All my care is going to be there. And you're going to be incentivized to reduce not only unit cost, but utilization of those, those, those devices. Uh, within what we're focused on, that is case cost, uh, I can tell you from experience, now we've been doing this for nine years, the best example I can show you of why we're really, how, how, how it works, uh, you know, we, we have seven specific programs, interdisciplinary programs within the cardiovascular center. Uh, each one has a medical director. Each one gets a monthly profit and loss statement for his, med they're all guys, so his medical, his uh, program, we've got to change that, uh, for his program. and. Uh, the single biggest, and so, and it's and it's integrated as you, as you guys do, between uh, professional professional revenue cost and hospital revenue cost, and each program director looks first every month to the overall contribution margin, uh, revenue minus direct expense, and that's my incentive plan is principally driven by, well, I have quality metrics too, but as far as the financial metrics, driven by that number. And how do you impact your contribution margin? There are two ways. You can either increase revenue or you can reduce costs per case. And uh, in 2013, uh, I spotted, because we look at this every month, that the uh, profitability of our advanced heart failure program had plummeted. And it was because in that year, we experienced a 40% increase increase in cost per case. And we wouldn't have even noticed, known that for maybe two years, three years, if we hadn't been looking at it. So in that way, um, I turned around Dave D'Onofrio at the time, and I said, you better fix this, because I, you know I love your program, but you're making it really hard for me to support it to certain people downstairs. Because it's on my incentive plan, too. And it's on his incentive plan. So he got to work, 
And all I can say is uh, he did things like his group did things like reducing the average length of stay for in our center for patients getting a heart transplant or a VAD. You ready for this? From 80 days in 2013 to about 30 days in 2014, 15, and beyond. 30 days is far better than market, far better than average. 80 days is really bad. And I can tell you the ways he does that. But the point is that you get together, you, you take this on together, you share information liberally, you tell people what they're being judged by, you get good people in leadership roles, and magic happens. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> One more question. One of the ultimate integrated uh, delivery places is in primary care. Um, and so I have a plea for you. Um, in order for us to manage not only cardiovascular care, but reducing risk factors for multiple um, organ system problems, if you could commit to reporting things in absolute risk reduction rather than relative risk reduction, um, across the board, this will make it possible for us to integrate across organ systems. Yeah. If we're working just within cardiovascular and giving us relative risk reduction, it doesn't help me when I'm taking this Well, I, I, I completely agree with you, and I, I don't... Uh... I, I think it's within, even if you're sticking within cardiovascular, it's important. So um, I'll give you a great example of where we're moving in that direction uh, is our current recommendations for statin use, right? So we used to drive to a given LDL cholesterol. Uh, we stopped doing that. What we, what we realized is, over the time, is that uh, uh, statins will reduce the relative risk across the risk stratum. So... You know, if your LDL cholesterol is 90 or 80, reducing it further still reduces relative risk. But the way, but but the but the absolute risk is much different depending on your baseline risk. So the recommendations now are based on a risk calculator, and if a patient has more than 7.5 percent probability of developing a cardiac event, you know, within the next 10 years you should use a statin regardless of what their LDL cholesterol is. But the 7.5% was somewhat, I won't call it arbitrary, but that doesn't, doesn't let me compare to other conditions that I'm treating the patient for. So, yeah. so, so setting at 7.5 puts me at a terrible place. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to defend the 7.5, okay? I have no, no stick in that, no dog in that fight. No dog in that fight. That's what I was trying to say. Um, so I, you know, if you, you know, pick another number. I don't, I don't really care. Okay, well, <laughs> but, but I think what you're saying is we're looking at cardiovascular risk, and there may be other effects that we're not picking up on. I, I agree with that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks a lot.